Matthew chapter 19. We, we come back to a, a story we started to look at last week, which is, uh, in one sense, uh, just a sad story that is, that is reproduced over and over again throughout all time. But also, as we'll see this morning, it is a hopeful story. It ends on a hopeful note. It began, of course, with this encounter with, uh, between Jesus and a young man who, who appeared to have it all. He was uh, wealthy. He was privileged. He had a seemingly boundless opportunity in front of him. There was all kinds of uh, 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 things that he could have done with his life. And yet, when he comes to Jesus, there is unrest in his soul. He ached in a way that all of his wealth and all of his accomplishments weren't able to really satisfy or, or alleviate. And he comes to Jesus with some of these burning issues that are going on in his heart. He was a man who was trapped between the allurements of his own worldly treasures and the yearning that his life was really supposed to be something more. It's a story, as I said, that in some ways mirrors that of so many others, and it invites the contemplation of every person uh, to the very depths of their own desires and the priorities that they set, where we live in a world that tells us all the time that we're to be measured by our outward success, our material possessions, and our gain, and yet we find ourselves entangled uh, so many times in in a rabbit hole in a kind of pursuit that never quite satisfies, pursuing a mirage that's always slipping through our fingers. Now, as we work our way through this narrative, we, we uh, sort of began with this pivotal moment where the man comes up and presents the, uh, the main question that's on his heart and mind to Jesus. What good thing must I do to find eternal life? It's a question that reverberates down through the corridors of time. And echoes in the hearts of so many people. What do I have to do? What am, what am I missing? What, what is the elusive thing that, that, that it keeps sort of dodging my life? Well, Jesus responds to all this as we started to see in his infinite wisdom, cutting past the surface question and getting to the core issues of this man's heart and, and really what's going inside. And uh, going on inside and redirects him back really to the, the questions he ought to be asking and the conclusions he ought to be drawing uh, as he finds the answers, beginning in verse 16 and 17 with the, the, the necessity of finding the right authority to even answer the question. I mean, if you're going to ask this question about eternal life, you should, you should uh, uh, certainly make sure that you're asking the person who has authority to answer it. If you're asking the question of how do I find life? How do I find satisfaction in life? How do I find the answers of life? You ought to think about who you're asking because the, 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 the sort of individuals that surround you every day and kind of, sort of going through the, the maze of life with you are not the ones who are qualified to answer this question. The one who's qualified to answer this question is the one who created life and the one who ultimately is going to judge your life in the end. And so Jesus, when the man comes and he asks this question, Jesus responds, why are you asking me? 
when there's only one who is good? Why are you asking me this question? Why will you ask anyone this question? The implication is, hopefully, if you're asking anybody, it's because you are asking to find out the answer that comes from God. You can ask all the people you want, and you can get all the opinions you want, but if you're not getting the right, the right answer, the one that comes directly from God, you're getting useless, useless information. And so he, he first of all directs him right to the back, uh, the, back to the right source, and then with that, obviously, comes uh, the right standard that is set by God. That's the, the second sort of critical component that Jesus introduces in verse 17 and 18 and 19. Uh, if you're going to be asking uh, from God, then the, the obvious place that you're going to get God's answer is in God's Word. And so he just simply points him back to God's Word, the commandments of God. You know the commandments. Keep the commandments. Now, some people imagine that, uh, that if God does have an answer, it's got to be this super complex thing that, that, you know, is so sort of far out there, so so mystical, so so unknowable, but that's not Jesus' response. His response is, you want to know what God says? Read God's Word. And it's plain and it's simple. What do the commandments say? You do these certain things, he says. Uh, He says, uh, keep the commandments. The man responds, which ones? Well, you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't bear false witness. This is simple stuff. Just understand the, the standard. It's real interesting that when Jesus is sort of is, uh, taking him through this, uh, he doesn't like, act like there's some elaborate explanation. He just gives him the commandments and then lets the guy deal with it, which is a, a sort of a curious uh, evangelistic technique. It's the right technique. And not to sort of rush past these fundamental issues, not to sort of assume that this guy had fully comprehended all the implications of this. He, he wants to make sure before he goes on to anything else that this man understood the message of God's law and that he understood the conviction or the condemnation, we might say, that it brings. Which sort of brings us to the third critical component that this whole story highlights, which is the the need to respond to all this with the right humility. If you're going to really understand the law the right way, you have to acknowledge the condemnation that it brings into your life, the fact that it declares you to be a failure, that, that there's no person who can do all of these things perfectly the way God demands. And so when you read the law and comprehend the law and, and accept the conviction of the law, then what the law tells you is you have failed. You have failed God. You have failed yourself. You failed to live up to the character of what you are supposed to be, what you were created to be, what you're designed to be. And because of all that, you do not deserve eternal life. You do not deserve anything from God. And so the proper response to all this would be the response of someone like David who said, you know, in sin my mother conceived me. I've been, I've been corrupted. I've, I've lived an entire life of sin. I keep sinning over and over again. Or he says in Psalm 51, against you, O God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? That's the right response, that kind of response of humility, of recognizing that, that if that is God's word on this subject and that is God's commandment I haven't kept the commandment and so I'm in trouble 
That should have been the response of this young man, but unfortunately it wasn't. Instead, Jesus, when he gives this sort of message, the man responds, well, all these things I've kept. What else do I still lack? As I said last week, it's it's like so many people, when you present to them the message of God's Word, they always put the onus back on God. Well, I've tried all that. You tell me that's what God requires. I've done all that. I've tried all that. I've prayed all that. I've done all that. Kept all those sort of rituals and commandments and all those other things. Obviously, there's not a problem with me. I've done everything that's asked of me. I've done everything that's required of me. That's the typical response. When people are presented with the message of salvation, the problem is always God not them. I've done everything that God said. This guy, of course, had been raised in the synagogue and he had read the, 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 the Word of God. He had read the law his entire life and he read it, but he read it in pride. And he never really accepted the message about it, the message about him, I should say, because he misses the humility that this is supposed to generate in him. He, he never acknowledges his deficiency, the deficiency not only in his performance, but the deficiencies in his character, how the law shined a light and, and, and sort of corru- showed the corrupt nature of what's inside. And so rather than confessing all that, rather than accepting all that, rather than declaring all that is true, rather than just accepting the message of the Word of God, he tries to paint himself as faultless. As, as the one who has sort of done everything that's been asked of him. The right response, as I said, would have been the response of someone like the Apostle Paul, who said, through the law, I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. That's the right response. When I understand what God's Word says about me, when I accept the verdict about me, when I understand the condemnation and the death penalty that it renders, then I accept the penalty. I accept the penalty. And so to realize what the law says is to realize that you're worthy of death and you surrender your life at that point to Christ. And the pathway then to life is through death, which is essentially the message of Christ's gospel over and over again. If you want to summarize the gospel of Christ, it is that. That in order to find your life, you must first lose it. That's it. In order to find your life, you must first lose it. And all this leads Jesus then to try to drive a little deeper to help this guy then understand, since he's not giving the right response, help him to understand that he's looking to the wrong savior or we would say that in a positive light the the fourth critical component is he needs to recognize the right savior all of the things that he's clinging to and hoping in and trusting in are not going to save him and the way Jesus tries to help this guy understand that is by by pointing out to him or or trying I should say to Uh, help him realize what he is hoping in. And he does that in verse 22 by saying, one thing you still lack. 
Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And as I said, started to say last week, this is not a vow of poverty that every person must take in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus never gives this specific command to any other uh, person when he's giving them the gospel. But this was the right command for this young man because this was the the thing that put the sort of the, the finger on the pulse of what it was that was binding him. Jesus understood that this man was putting his trust in his riches. And as a matter of fact, it was probably his extreme wealth that, that was the reason why he believed he had kept all the commandments. This is one of the stumbling blocks of the rich. It deceives people in this way. It actually makes them think that their righteousness is confirmed. In fact, Jewish people were almost explicit in this belief. They imagined that material riches, outward success, outward blessings was the indisputable evidence that God was pleased with a person. And so like so many other people through the years, they attribute their outward moral success to a to a, in a direct reflection on their moral character. They, the reason they are rich is because they are good. Their wealth, in other words, almost confirms the pride in their hearts. Their outward giftedness, their outward success, whatever it might be, it confirms the pride in their hearts. And so they wind up having a difficulty seeing the negative side of their character. And so Jesus wants to help him still to see what's really in his heart and he perceives that this is the stumbling block and so he puts this test in front of him to help him bring to the surface and reveal what's hidden underneath, underneath the veneer of all of his material wealth. He understood that this particular challenge, the challenge of asking him to sell everything and give it to the poor would be the one thing that could expose him. Not that he wants to inflict unnecessary harm on anyone and and Jesus understood as well as uh, anybody that whatever this might, man might have given up could easily be replaced by the Lord if he so chooses he just wanted to see where his trust was he was kind of like the apostle Paul when the apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to instruct the rich he says First of all, not to be haughty. That is, not to have an inflated view of yourself. Uh, This is almost inevitable, as I said, as a temptation of the wealthy person that they tie their sort of sense of individualistic worth to their material worth. As the proverb says, a rich man is wise in his own eyes. So the more successful he or she is, the more they assume that that is a reflection on their own wisdom or a reflection on their own spiritual insight. And so they, the wealthy person becomes haughty because the, in their heart they think that their wealth is a direct reflection on their virtue. This is the unfortunate temptation of the rich and what, what Timothy needed to, to warn them against, your personal Worth or your individualistic character is not found in your financial worth. It is not found in your financial worth. 
It's found the same way it's found for everyone else, by renouncing who you are and renouncing trust in yourself and putting all your trust in Christ. And by the way, that's where your eternal standing comes from as well. So whatever you think defines your value in this life, in terms of all that outward stuff, it is, it is a mirage. In fact, it, it, can, it can fade away as quickly as a mirage. That was the second warning that Timothy was supposed to give the rich there in 1 Timothy 6. He tell, he's supposed to instruct the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust in that stuff. Don't put all of your trust in, and all of your sort of confidence in that outward success because guess what? It can all fade away in a heartbeat. And then where are you? Where is your standing with God? I mean, it can fade away in a literal heartbeat through a heart attack. Or it can fade away through any number of other uh, sort of catastrophic events or legal upheaval or just foolish decisions that you might make. And then where are your, where's your standing with God? That's why the proverb warns a rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. In other words, you imagine that all that stuff is a confirmation, an affirmation of who you are and you become haughty and you become proud and you become unteachable. Instead, Paul says that Timothy should tell the rich not only not to set their hope on their riches, but to set their hope on God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. This is the contrast. This is the distinction. This is the way that you're supposed to, to live. You're supposed to set your hope on God and trust that it's God who gave you the things that you have. And therefore, if you were to lose them, God is the one who can restore them because they came from him to begin with, but your hope is in him. And that loosens the grip, if you will, on those things. You're ready to let them go if you have to let them go because you know where they came from and you know who can give them back. And so put your, put your confidence in Him. Why not? I mean, why would you want to hold on to all the grief and vexation and anxiety and stress of trying to accumulate all that stuff and cling to it and hold to it? Why not just cast all your hope on Him? And quit trying to secure yourself with your wealth. Turn your focus to the Lord who provides you with everything that you have to enjoy. This is essentially the challenge that Jesus was putting in front of this rich young ruler. Understand and see the possessions that are in your hands as instruments that are given to you to serve God and glorify Him. And if He so wills for you to have those, He can provide more. Jesus wanted to see where this guy's trust was and, and was his trust in his riches or was his trust in God? Would he walk away from all of the riches and cling to Christ or would he cling to the riches and walk away from, from Christ? Well, as it turns out, it was the latter. He wasn't ready to let go. He, he was like a man hanging over a chasm with one hand desperately on a rope and the other hand dangling below him with a bag of wealth trying to decide which hand to loosen and he loosened the one on the rope so that he could cling to his riches 
All that sad event, though, it leads to a very poignant discussion with the disciples in verse 23 through 26 as Jesus highlights now what is another critical component of this gospel message that he was trying to get across, and that is the fact that you've got to trust in the right power here. As the guy departs, Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them, truly, it's only with difficulty that a rich person enters into heaven. He's zeroing in for this guy on his wealth. It was his wealth that was clinging to his heart. In fact, he thought that he owned the wealth, but the wealth owned him. But it wasn't just that. I mean, it could be anything that sort of grips your heart and keeps you out of heaven. When you look into Mark's gospel, Jesus uh, Jesus actually says um, that it's not just wealth, it's anything. It's hard for anyone, he says, to enter into the kingdom. Your heart might be bound not by riches, but it might be bound by your friendships. It might be bound by the sort of the praise of other men. It might be those things that have the grip on your heart and you're not willing to let go of all those things. You will cling to them to your death. But riches do have this unique sort of grip that does hold people. Calvin says those who are exceedingly rich are held by Satan, bound as it were in chains that they may not raise their thoughts to heaven. Jesus had even warned, remember back in Matthew 13, that when the seed is sown into someone's heart, it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke it out. So it's just the, just the cares of the world and everything around you that chokes that word out in your heart. Jesus said at another time, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can have two of lots of things. You can have two cars. You can have two homes. You might even have two jobs and two bosses. But you can't have two owners. You can't be two You can't be a slave, I should say, to two masters because slavery implies absolute ownership. And you're either owned by the world or you're owned by God. You're either enslaved to the world or you're enslaved to God. You can't be enslaved to both. And so these things had choked out faith in this young man. The sad story, as I said, that's repeated over and over again. If it's not wealth, it's at least the desire for wealth or the desire for the pleasures of this world that choke out faith in the heart of so many people. And Jesus turns and affirms this to the disciples, just emphasizing to them that that it is only those who are genuinely at the point of realizing the corruption of their life and all the woes and all the anxiety that has been sown in their heart because of their sin. Those who really have not only a desire for heaven, but they have grown to begin to loathe their sin. And they no longer want to be under its indomitable power over their lives. They want to be free. They want to be released. They want to be 
out from under it. It's only those people who are going to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he uses this little image. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. You find that proverb a number of places in the ancient literature. In the East, people used a camel, I mean, excuse me, an elephant, because that was the largest animal that they knew. But in the Middle East, the largest animal was a camel. And so they, they would say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, meaning that obviously it's impossible. That's why this rich young seeker became a rich young rejecter, because he tried to enter in to the kingdom holding on to his old life, holding on to his old gods. And he didn't realize that he was not going to be able to do that. In fact, he, he didn't realize that, uh, that he needed to do that, that he needed to be freed from that. Sinners say all kinds of things. They, they may despair sometimes over their sense of, of melancholy. They may be depressed sometimes when they assess all of their failures. They're often overwhelmed when they think about having to own up to all the ways they have strayed from God, they often yearn for some sort of connection to God. A sinner may even say that they wish and they long for heaven. They often describe a desire to have a better life and to be a better person. In fact, self-help books are the best-selling books on, uh, on the market. Uh, you, have, you, know, you package something as 10 ways to improve yourself on Saturday, you're going to make a lot of money. This guy probably had those same kinds of desires. They can do all of those things, but the one thing they must do, they must confess that they can do nothing. They must confess their absolute inability to save themselves in their present condition. And they must be willing to leave it behind. You can't go through the eye of a needle clinging to the old life. You can't go to the eye of a needle clinging to your old wealth. It is hard to enter the kingdom. Unfortunately, there's a world teeming with people who are seeking answers and seeking change and seeking to improve themselves. And there are uh, probably almost an equal number of, of churches and prophets who would try to exploit that desire and offer them some sort of salvation without this kind of renunciation. They will manipulate and they will motivate to try to get them to join their religious cause but never have this kind of inner transformation. They try to make them a disciple without, without the transformation. And it's futile, Jesus says. It's futile to try to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. The bottom line is Jesus wants this guy and he wants everyone to understand that you've got to lose it. You have to lose that old life if you're going to enter into the kingdom. It's a narrow gate that you have to go through. And any attachment to this world has to be abandoned. It's the same message, as I said, from the law, the same message that to enter the kingdom you have to come to an end of yourself it's a difficult message. In fact, it's an impossible message. And, 
And when the disciples hear this, you'll see their response in verse 25. They heard this. They were greatly astonished and they were saying, well, who can be saved? It's not, it's not even just the rich. Obviously, that would be obvious from the, the conversation, but they, they come to the conclusion, well, then nobody can be saved. Uh, this is probably our clue that, that when Jesus was uh, sharing this, he was expanding the message beyond the rich to anybody who is clinging to anything in this life. Jesus tells them, look, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If this is going to happen, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen solely through the power of God, the regenerating power in your heart. This is what the Scripture tells us over and over again. John 1, verse 12, for example, to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become the children of God who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, if you're going to come to Christ, if you're going to be released from all the things that are ensnaring your heart, you're not going to do it by your own efforts. You're not going to do it by your prayers repeated over and over again. You're not going to do it by your sort of high-minded devotion. You're not going to do it by anything in you, in your will. It's going to have to be by God. Because the stuff that grips your life is so powerful. The stuff that has its hold on your soul is so rock solid. You will not break through apart from the work of God. Well, Peter hears all this in verse 27 and, and he responds maybe, maybe with sort of elation, uh, you know, maybe with some other motive, but he responds and he says, well, we left everything and followed you. That's, that's what happened to us, he's saying. What you're describing is what happened to us. We left everything. We left our fishing boats, we left our nets, we left the family business, we left all the sort of employees that were there and the lifestyle that came with it and the community that we were involved with. We left our families behind. We left everything and followed you. All that stuff that had once been a part of our life, we died to that stuff. We denied ourselves. We crucified ourselves. They had come because the Spirit had transformed them. Because they suddenly realized that whatever they were pursuing in this life was not life. And life was found only in Christ. They realized the judgment of the law. They realized that they deserved death. And they accepted the death penalty. And the death penalty meant they were crucified with Christ. But now they live. But along the way, they lost everything. In fact, Peter asked, you know, what, what, what then will we have? I mean, we lost everything. We don't have anything that's holding us back anymore from following you. But Jesus wants to, if you will, sort of correct that or point out to them that that loss is not a total loss. To say that you've died to yourself and given your life to Christ doesn't mean that you are just a loser. 
you actually are the greatest winner, which is that last critical component that he points out to him in verse 27 through 30, that you have to uh, understand there are rewards that go along with this sacrifice. And you ought to be seeking those rewards, those right rewards. He says to them there at the very end of, uh, of chapter 19, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, and you, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He wants Peter to understand this as well. You know, yeah, you've lost, you've given up, you've walked away from all these other things, but don't, don't imagine that that's the end of the story here. I want you to know that God has taken note of every one of those sacrifices and there will be a reward. Some of you, of course, have experienced exactly what Peter was already articulating by embracing this gospel and by bowing your heart to the Lord. It has cost you. It has cost you dearly. You have lost friendships. You have lost relationships with loved ones. Some of you have lost relationships with your parents or you've lost relationship with your kids or you've lost relationship maybe even with your spouse. Some of you have lost jobs and opportunity. And, the, and as you go on in life, you find that these sacrifices are, uh, are sometimes steep. But at the same time, even while you're losing, you have already gained. You've already tasted of the kindness of the Lord. You've already sort of received back in your own life the blessings of walking with the Lord and inheriting a new family. Now the relationships that you have with other people in Christ are like brothers and sisters, like fathers and, and, and sons. You find some of the deepest connection with people that you never met before. And in those connections, there is untold joy and there's satisfaction and fulfillment and peace and there's hope. And on top of all that, you have the promise of life after death so that whatever you are enduring in this life is nothing as you look forward to the day when he is going to return. And Jesus wants to point you to that direction as well. He says to his disciples, in the regeneration, which is the word palagonasia, it's the word that's used in Titus 3.5 to talk about our own being born again. We're born again, he says, by the, by the, the, the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. But here he's not talking about personal regeneration. He's talking about a regeneration of the world. A regeneration of the earth as we know it. This was actually the word that was used by Philo whenever he talked about God making the world anew after he had destroyed the world by Noah's flood. It's used by Josephus to talk about the new beginning that Israel had after their Babylonian captivity. Jesus here is talking about an entire new beginning for the world. Peter mentions this in Acts 3 whenever he talks about a period of restoration of all things about which the mouth of the prophets spoke in, in ancient times. 
He was telling the people of Israel there in his inaugural, one of his inaugural sermons that there's coming a time when Christ comes back when all the world is going to be restored. You say, well, if there's a restoration, that implies that there was an original, and that's true. There was an original. It was called the Garden of Eden. God it created the world, and He created it, and He designed it in a certain way that it would function and it would operate to His glory and to our great blessing. And so this Pelagonasia, this rebirth, this restoration talks about a return to that original design, the design that God had when He created Adam and Eve. It'll be a return to the conditions that existed before the fall of mankind. A fall, by the way, that plunged you and I not only into condemnation, but the Scripture says that at that same time, God cursed the earth and He cursed all creation so that all the the earth underneath us, the skies above and the heavens beyond, all of them are now operating under a cursed environment where they are deteriorating. They're facing corruption and they're creating havoc all around us. Romans 8 says that this, this is creation groaning and suffering. It actually says that creation is suffering under the bondage of our curse and awaiting the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the return of Christ, the resurrection of, of, of believing humanity. And Jesus is telling the disciples that this is going to happen. He's going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to be a worldwide kingdom, a worldwide government that will be administered all over the globe like the waters covering the sea. And it will be a dominion of peace and righteousness and divine order and the blessings that come from that. And through his power and through his wisdom and through his reign, the curse that has plagued creation will be subdued and it will be reversed and it will be restorative. And all of this will come as a, an extended testimony to the righteousness and the wisdom of Christ. Scripture talks about it over and over again. All throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the reign of this righteous son of David and how they're going to be coming to him to decide the issues of nations. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, over and over again, it talks about how nations are going to hammer their weapons into plowshares. In other words, all of their technological uh, sort of minds and all of their technological energy are no longer going to be aiming towards war and destruction of other people. They're going to be aiming towards productivity and blessing and provision. And there's going to be an explosion of of renewal and refreshing, not only economically, agriculturally, scientifically, but culturally, morally, politically, spiritually. And Revelation says that this kingdom that's going to be established is going to reign for a thousand years on the face of the earth. A thousand years of testimony of what earth should have been had it been devoted to God. Now, as a part of all that, you and I are going to be reigning. Scripture says we're going to be resurrected and glorified bodies. Revelation says that he who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. The next chapter in Revelation 5, we will reign with Christ on the earth. 
Some of you may remember in 1 Corinthians when Paul was talking to the church about kind of petty disputes that they were having with one another. And these disputes were becoming so acrimonious and sort of boiling over that they were now going to legal um, the legal system of the law courts outside of the church. They were going to secular courts to try to decide disputes between themselves as, as believers. And Paul tells them, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest of law courts? Or do you not know that you will judge the angels? How much more the matters of this life? And so this is all future tense. He's all saying this is going to happen. This will happen. There you will reign with Christ and you will judge the world. You're going to have, in other words, responsibility to decide the weighty issues of nations. You can't even resolve some petty dispute between yourselves in your own local church with the resources of Christ. You have everything you need, and you'll have everything you need then. You will reign with Him. And it's apparent by what Jesus tells the disciples here that there are going to be distinction in these administrative roles. Uh, Some people reigning over some nations and some territories even tells the disciples that you who follow me will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's going to be territorial distinctions here. As I said, the Scripture tells us there's going to be variation in nations. It says that the nations are going to come to Christ to decide their disputes. So we know there are going to be distinctions. Each will have their own administration. But within these administrations, there are going to be believers who are entrusted with some of the tasks delegated from Christ to carry out His righteous rule. And every one of us participating in that. Receiving not only the responsibility, but receiving, receiving the great blessing and the great, the great benefit, the great privilege, and the great rewards of serving alongside of Christ. So Jesus is reminding His disciples, yes, I know... I know that following me has brought into your life pain. And I know that following me has brought ridicule and mockery. I mean, Jesus himself had personally experienced this. His own family thought that he was a lunatic. You may remember they tried to come at some point and drag him away as if to take him to the insane asylum. They thought he had lost his mind because of the kind of things that he was saying and doing and teaching. But Jesus knows, he knows that you have faced all of these losses. He knows that you've paid all these costs. But he also knows there's a coming time of honor and privilege and blessing in the kingdom. So that the momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so he wants them to remain faithful and understand at the end of verse 29, you'll receive a hundredfold and you'll inherit eternal life. Uh, Just not, that's not an exact calculation because he says, you know, you're going to receive 
brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. Uh, he's not necessarily saying you're going to have a hundred mothers. But he's just saying there's going to be an abundance. An abundance that comes back to you. That's why he tells him at the very end there in verse 30. That many who are first are going to be last. And the last are going to be first. You see this guy that walked away? I mean, he chose this world. He chose whatever the, he thinks this world offers. Just understand, those people are going to be last. And those people that are last, they're, they're dismissed by the world. They are looked upon as, as uh, sort of foolish, maybe, at best, uh, devious at worst. Your, your motives are questioned. Your character is assaulted. Your intelligence is insulted. And you are dismissed over and over again by the world. Those people who are last, they're going to be first. They're going to be first. You've endured so much, but it's proven the genuineness of your faith. And that genuineness, it's going to be exalted alongside of my throne, he says. The sad things, the sad things that this young man never realized. He got so close to the gospel. He got so close to eternal life. He had been brought up having been taught the scriptures and yet he never understood it. In his mind, the problem was always outside of himself. The problem was perhaps with God. That God wasn't giving him what he thought he should have. Maybe, maybe as I said, he, he tried to seek God and he felt like God didn't answer him. So the problem is still God. But what he never saw was the problem was in himself. And it was costly. It was such a costly mistake. Because he, having clung to the world, he gave up eternal life. That's my prayer for you today, is if you are here today clinging, clinging to the world, clinging to its praise, clinging to its wealth, that your eyes would finally open, that you would finally realize the foolishness of what you're doing, and that you wouldn't be one of the sad, sad stories of someone who turns now and walks away. But instead, you would be one of the ones who finds life, not only now, but for all eternity, alongside Christ. Father, we're grateful for this uh, clear message that comes to us through the story of this young man. It's, it's a sad story that we see repeated over and over again, but it is the hopeful story, the hopeful story that for those, for those who are willing to accept your truth, for those who are willing to recognize this verdict against their character and their life, for those who are willing to declare that it's, it is true, your power takes hold of their heart and begins to make them a new creature. You free them 
from the bondage and slavery to this world and to their sin. But not only that, you give them life. I pray today that you would do that very thing by your irresistible power. Would you work in the hearts and minds of anyone who's here who doesn't yet know you. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive them as your own children and grant them life, not only now, but eternal life and all the blessings that come with it. We ask in Christ's name, amen.